Welcome to Real, Raw, and Racialized, a podcast where we talk about how race has affected our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We share our personal stories to talk about how race has shaped our lens of the world and how we operate in it. My name is Erlinda, and I would like to introduce our guest, my friend, the future Dr. Hannah Hyun White. She's currently working on a PhD in education studies focusing on racialized experiences in Asian American communities in higher education. She identifies as an East Asian Korean transracial adoptee American woman. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me, Erlinda. No problem. I'm so excited you're here with me. I'm so excited to be here too. We get to chat outside of our normal professional duties that we have to do. <laughs> yes. Erlinda, being succinct is not my strength. It is a problem as a PhD student. I you turn I talk in circles so I apologize in advance <laughs> that's fine I more so talk in succinctness which is also why when they give me like in school and they're always like give me like a 20 page paper I'm like I can do this in like five like oh, what I wish. Is, I, yeah that's why my one doctoral course that I took they're like for your final you could either write a 30 page paper or do a seminar. And I was like, I'll take the seminar. <laughs> fair, very fair. Okay, so really what start, how I start off my conversations for this podcast is, when is the first time you realized you were a racialized being? Uh, pretty young because as a transracial adoptee that was adopted by a white family, you tend to stick out a lot. <laughs> Uh, especially because I grew up in a very white city in Arizona, Scottsdale, to be exact. Uh, I did not look like anyone but my brother, who is also adopted. So I knew from a pretty young age that I was basically not like my parents or anyone else that I saw. Um, and my parents always talked to us a lot about our adoption and that we were Asian and you know we were adopted from Korea. So I knew, but I... I don't think I really fully comprehended what that meant, probably until high school. Is your brother also, I guess your brother isn't like a blood relative. No, so we're not blood related, if that makes sense. But yeah. well, he's still my brother, you know, yeah. it's, it's complicated. <laughs> so what happened in high school where you like fully understood, well, maybe not fully, but really more understood uh, what it meant to really be different? I went to a very white high school for one. So for starters, my high school was known as New Money and our rival, our quote unquote rival high school was known as Old Money, if that gives you any sort of sense of what my high school was like. Um, so a lot of very rich, privileged white students. Uh, but again, like I didn't really look like anyone there, but I did start meeting like other Asians at the time. And so then that's when it clicked with me of like, oh, like we really are different. Like there is no one like us. We're kind of this like niche little group. Um, and then not to like sound cliche, but also like a lot of bullying just happened in high school because of the way I looked, you know, like very typical of what you hear, of like being made fun of the whole racial slurs. I really don't want to repeat it on your podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, and just being pushed and shoved into locker simply because I was an Asian woman and yeah so 
I think that's when it really clicked with me of like, oh, shoot, um, I am Asian. People are telling me to go back to Korea. Um, and I didn't know how to handle it because I will say as much as I love my family and as great of a job I think they did in handling having two children of color, race wasn't something we really talked about as a family. So I don't really feel like I was prepared to really confront those types of situations. How would your your family or your parents really talk to you then when all these things were happening to you? It was more just like, this is really messed up. I'm sorry that's happening. So there was a lot of valid validation and affirmation that these things were happening. But I also think like as white people, it was hard for my parents to have to confront some of their whiteness in a sense. Um, you know, the fragility component of it all. And no one wants to think that they're a bad parent or, you know, they didn't prepare their child enough for something. So in a way, we just didn't really talk about it. And when I tried to bring up these conversations, it was just kind of like, oh, ignore them. Like, you know who you are, like you're better than them, you know, don't let them get to you. Mm. So really like, not really talking about the root of the issue. It just seemed like regular bullying. Yes, yes. It was not attributed to my race by any stretch of the imagination, even though the comments were like, literally like, please dig a hole and go back to Korea. Yeah. Or being called a communist because people I thought I was from North Korea. North Korea. <laughs> so really then, what did your school do about it? Oh, absolutely nothing. I mean, a lot of it was I didn't feel like I had the agency to really speak up or say anything. And I think in high school, I was pretty quiet for the most part. Um, I just kind of wanted to fly under the radar, didn't really care much for high school. You know, like I had my couple of friends, um, but yeah, so nothing, basically nothing. <laughs> Did your brother go through the same treatment? I think a little bit. We don't always talk about it because I think high school is kind of a touchy topic sometimes. So he is also a professional ballet dancer. So he really only went to high school like in person for one year or no, no, for three years. But I was only with him for one year because we're only two years apart. So he never really talked about these experiences. And for him, too, because we were both so focused on dancing, we weren't super involved in high school. So I think a lot of it was like there was a disconnect there and then just intentionally choosing not to talk about those experiences are you also a ballet dancer I I was in a former life not <laughs> anymore I have the grace of a hippopotamus now <laughs> you could be a Fantasia hippopotamus ballet dancer that's true I do love hippopotamus hippopotami I don't know the plural of a hippopotamus <laughs> sure I believe that's probably it it's like, what's the plural of octopus, right? Yeah. Is it octopi? That, that, I don't know. That one, that one gets really tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so then how does that then, um, those experiences, I guess, really also even relate to just being in Scottsdale or being in Arizona? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of it was just like, it was so white. It's like Scottsdale's very conservative. Like if you drive around Scottsdale right now, like there are Trump flags still flying everywhere. Um, 
Yeah. So I think a lot of it was just that type of like city that it is. And it's very privileged. Like most people that live there have a lot of money. Scottsdale's literally called the Beverly Hills of the desert. I will say like my family was not one of those. Like I would like to think that we were, we had very a humble life, you know, like it was comfortable. Um, but I think because when you're just surrounded by so much whiteness and that's all you ever know, there were opportunities to have these types of conversations and to really unpack, like, what does it mean to be Asian American or a person of color or even a transracial adoptee for that matter, trying to navigate literally an entire country that was founded on white supremacy. Um, so I felt very naive at times and I kind of just shut down, to be honest. Like I just tried to suppress everything. I was convinced that I was just too sensitive. That was something I was also told too, is you just take things too personally, like you're too emotional, which of course has a lot of gendered language in it, but also racialized too, um, mm -hmm. especially as Asian American women. Um, but it was in college when I really felt like I had opportunities to start exploring this identity away from all of, I guess, what I thought I knew growing up in Scottsdale. So is there like something that you're like, oh, this is, this is my aha moment. Like I kind of get this now. There was an Asian American cultural center at the university I went to. And I had met a friend. I really, at the time, you know, like a first year student, like if you think about like identity development, <laughs> I was like, not, you know, critically conscious of my identity at the time. But I made a friend and he was like, hey, I'm part of the Filipino club here. Like you should come to a meeting. And I was like, well, I'm not Filipino. And he was like, well, you don't have to be Filipino. Like you can just come and eat food and like talk to people. And me being kind of like antisocial, I was like, ah, people, but okay. <laughs> so I went to a meeting and I had never seen so many Asians in one place in my entire life, let alone like an entire resource center that was dedicated to supporting Asian American students. So I was like mind blown to say the least, um, which I know like sounds pretty hysterical, but like all I knew was white people pretty much. And I just thought I was an outcast <laughs> essentially. Um, so that's what I really learned about the resources. And I met my mentor in the center. He was a grad assistant at the time, um, also pursuing his PhD in higher ed. And he was like, well, have you, he first asked me like everything I was involved with, because I got pretty involved in college. I was an orientation leader. I worked for career services. I was on a conference committee, like all of the things not really putting together that this was an actual career you could pursue really thought I was going to be a speech therapist, like wholeheartedly. My wow, soul. speech therapy? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so he had asked me, like, have you ever heard of higher education and student affairs? And I was like, no, what's that? And he was like, everything you're doing, you could do for a living. And I was like, no, no, good sir. I'm going to be a speech therapist. <laughs> and he was like, okay, come talk to me in three days. So in three days I went back and I was like, okay, I did some research. And I was like, I wanna change my whole career path. And he's like, awesome. So there was that, but I think more than that, he was really the first person to encourage me to kind of explore my Asian American identity with my identity of being an adoptee. Um, he said it was super important that these stories, my story, if I felt like I wanted to share it, like it was important and it could be a learning opportunity, but also a growth opportunity for me too. 
And that's when I told my adoption story at a cultural center storytelling event. And it all came out at that moment. <laughs> wow, that's a lot to also, just, I guess, just like also be really vulnerable in front of like a crowd of people. Yeah, and I mean, it didn't come without consequences. I mean, some people felt like they got closer to me because they could understand, but then other people are like, oh, you're not a real Asian. So like you have no business being in here, which is probably like a whole different story. So it was very mixed reactions. But for me, I would say going back to like what you said, like that aha moment, that's when I was like, I felt like I could reclaim my identity and like really be proud of who I was because I felt like I had to suppress it for so long. Absolutely. I was like, listen, like, well, on one side of this, did you know that Arizona is like third or fourth in like the largest Filipino community in the country? I did not know that. Wow. I know, right? When I learned that, I learned this in Boston and like I went to a conference and they said that and I was like, I'm from Arizona. You're lying. There's no way there's that many Filipinos. Um, but I think it's because they're all in like the Chandler area. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because I'm like, I'm from South Phoenix. There's like no way yes um secondly you being being considered a, a not real Asian I'm like listen like I'm full like not adopted and whatnot and people already tell me I'm not a real Asian so like this is the podcast to talk about that yeah so it's it's kind of a uh, I'll try to as I told you I'm not a succinct person but we're gonna try and make it succinct that's what editing is for Hannah oh I love that thank you <laughs> <laughs> so as my time kind of went on in college um I really started to find my place in racial justice activism so at the time that's when the incident at the University of Missouri happened and their black student union had released a list of demands demanding that their president step down you know the football team refused to play a game until that happened and because of the actions of our own black student union at my college we all the cultural centers came together so my university i'm sorry let me back up we're pretty unique in the sense that like every single racial group had their own cultural center so a group of us that were kind of considered i guess like the leaders or were on like the leadership teams for the cultural centers came together we wrote a 16 page list of demands um, and released it to the entire university. We did a peaceful demonstration. We blocked our president from getting back into our office, um, the whole nine yards. Um, but I felt really empowered in that moment because I was like, there are other people of color. Like that's when I learned what a person of color actually is and that I was considered a person of color. Uh, so it was really cool to just really understand like what collectivism meant, what solidarity meant. But again, it didn't come without consequences um, because of that and a lot of very complicated things that happened. That's when people really started saying, you're not a real Asian. You have no business doing this work. Like you cannot understand what it means to be a true Asian American. So you need to step down. And again, like I don't want to be dramatic and be like oh I was bullied but in a way like there were a lot of things that happened in my cultural center there were a lot of rumors that were started about me I started feeling very isolated people started pulling away from like friendships and relationships and I ultimately left my cultural center because I in a way felt like I got pushed out like it was too much emotionally and mentally to handle and 
the directorate or certain staff in that department when I would go and try and tell them about these experiences a lot of the responses were well you all are adults if I don't see it happening then it's not my problem so figure it out yourself Uh, which was hard to hear you know it's like you are a staff in this area this is your center and you're not going to do anything or even try and address it Um, and so that was kind of like my final straw and I left And that was really hard. It felt like a really traumatic breakup (laughs) with a partner. Absolutely. Because it's kind of like the home you were in and that you created at college. And then it's like, okay, cool. I'll just redefine this. Yeah. It's like where I hung out. I did homework there. Like I did the whole Atekuya Otting program with the Filipino club. Like I, you know, that was that was home, like you said. And then all of a sudden to basically be told like, you don't belong here because of the family you're raised by. It was really sad to say the least. Even more so like, how do your parents react to even like hearing more, like, I guess even more about like your college experience or beyond that? I never told my parents what was happening. When I told them like I was gonna step down from like being on the board of directors for my cultural center or whatever, I was just like, oh, it's, you know, grad school app season. Like, I just wanna focus on that, like focus on my last year getting through that. But I did tell my mom finally kind of like what happened, not even just recently, actually, like within the past six months. And she was heartbroken. Like I was really touched, but also surprised by her reaction because I was not expecting how deeply it would hit her. And, you know, the mama bear claws kind of came out. She was like, had I would have known this, that like you didn't even feel comfortable to walk in your own graduation. After all that you did, she was like, oh, I would have been making phone calls. She's like, not that I could because of FERPA, but she's like, still, I would have tried. <laughs> um, so it was, it was touching to know like how much it meant to her and she could really feel how like deeply it impacted me. But she was also really sad that I felt like I couldn't say anything um, and that she felt partially responsible for that. Oh, but that's, I, I, I understand the like conflicting feelings about that of like, oh, maybe I should have told you, but also like, I appreciate that you did tell me. Um, but also impressed that she knows FERPA. Yeah, you know, she, she knows, mothers know everything, or at least my mother does. She seems to know everything. <laughs> Because that was like, most people don't know about FERPA. Like the amount of calls you get from parents to be like, I demand to know about this, about my child. And we're like, we can't. It's protected by FERPA. (laughs) Right? FERPA is our favorite F word in higher education. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think she knew about it because more, she like one, paid attention at orientation, like when they had the parent session. But two, she was more of a hands-off type parent. She was like, look, you're an adult. Like, of course I'm here if you need anything, but like, other than that, I'm just going to try and stay out of your business because this is really your time to kind of figure out who you are. So she had that good of a mindset, which I appreciated, but she did feel responsible or partially responsible that I felt like I couldn't say anything. But a lot of it was like, I didn't blame my parents at all. I just felt like I had such a unique experience that at the time, I knew no other transracial adoptees in higher education. I did not meet another transracial adoptee in higher education until I was doing interviews for a master's program. And that's when I met someone else. So I just felt like no one could really understand. So what was the point 
of saying something if nothing really could be done or someone couldn't fully understand the experience. That's fair. What was that like to meet another transracial adoptee? Confusing. I was like, there's more of us out there. (laughs) Uh, But no, it was also very empowering in a sense because you know, when you meet another adoptee, you're like, I, I think you're adopted, but I don't want to assume. Cause you know, you don't go up to someone and be like, I mean, some people do, but you really shouldn't go up to people <laughs> and be like, Hey, are you adopted? Um, but you know, a lot of us adoptees, I feel like we have like that sixth sense or, you know, you go on social media and you're like, the old parents are white. Like, I'm pretty sure you're adopted. <laughs> Um, which is kind of what happened. Like we had met at a preview days where we were like interviewing for grad assistantships and we had gotten to talking and she had added me on Facebook. We had kept in touch. And then finally the ice was broken and we were like, Hey, are you a transracial adoptee? Um, and the rest was kind of history. Like to this day, I still keep in touch with that person. We actually serve on a leadership team together in the same role um, for a higher education organization. So it was really nice to find community and to finally feel like I could talk about an experience that someone else could actually fully understand. Wow, that sounds lovely. I'm so happy that you got that experience because I feel like most people, I think, get that in college if they didn't get that before. And so to not, to not have that in college and then eventually get it, like I can imagine the feeling of like wow I feel seen like someone gets this yes yeah and then meeting her just really opened up doors in a sense to meeting other people in our community like there is a whole Facebook group called transracial adoptees in student affairs and there's a hundred of us there's over a hundred of us which who would have thought you know because I feel like a lot of people don't really know what our field is until you either meet someone in it or you're just actually working in it So the fact that there were over a hundred people like me working in higher education, I was like, this is amazing. This is so cool. Um, And it just led to other opportunities to be able to connect with people. Um, It was through this group and through APAN, actually, I met one of my mentors, Amanda Asselon, who was a a former co-chair of APAN. And she's a transracial adoptee. And yeah, she kind of took me under her her little wing um, and just kind of guided me. And she's been there for me like this whole entire time through like my master's journey, through this shit show. I'm sorry, am I allowed to cuss on your podcast? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, this shit show of an experience of a PhD. Um, and I, I just don't know what I would do without community. Like community to me is everything. And then to find community within the Asian American community that were actually transracial adoptees is something I never thought would be possible. That sounds amazing. I'm like so happy for you. Thank you. Uh, through that, what was grad school like? Interesting. <laughs> um, so I actually stayed at my same institution. I know, controversial decision. Um, but I did stay at my same institution for my master's program that I did my undergrad at. Because a lot of it was I felt my work wasn't done, but also like low-key money talks. And they gave me an offer that was really hard to refuse. Um, so I stayed there. And honestly, I had an overall good experience with faculty. Um, I was very, very supported specifically by my advisor and my thesis chair. It was other students I had a lot of issues with. I was one of four people of color 
in my cohort, there was one of us from each racial group. So they really like check, check, checked all those boxes. Um, people in my cohort tried to say we were very diverse because it was 40% students of color. And I was like, there are 10 of us. That's no, that's really not how that math should work. <laughs> uh, so I, I felt lonely in a sense, but because I had been introduced to this community of other transracial adoptees, and that's when I started getting more involved um, in communities like APAN, I felt like I could cope with it better because I, my mind focus was like, okay, you just need to get in, get this degree, you know, do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, I knew I had a community I could go to and be like, look, I am having a real rough time right now. Can I just vent to you? And that's honestly what got me through it. So, yeah. I feel like it's always the students. More often than not, I feel like it's always students rather than faculty. Because I feel like people pick programs based on faculty and not students. Not that you can pick students. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. And it just, uh, the rest of my cohort, the other 60% was all white women. So there was also that factor too, of like trying to play for lack of a better word, like the oppression Olympics, but like, I'm still a woman. And then the students of color being like, but you still benefit from whiteness. Like, why don't you understand this? Um, Like the well-meaning white woman trope. Yeah. But at times I felt like they weren't even well-meaning. They were just mean girls that just thought students of color were just too feisty or whatever like we we got told like some of us were bullying them because of like we would call them out in class or because we would get upset when they would say you know low-key racist things and they were held accountable for it so yeah it was not a great experience but looking back I was able to get through it because of certain faculty and because of community and I will be forever grateful for that. <laughs> I think though that's also a good thing that they get called out because I think the other people that the thing that people forget is like when you're a grad student these people are going to go on to like professional roles working with students so especially in this like especially now like it's either get called out as a student or get called out as a staff faculty where like it could make the school newspaper and could like ruin potentially your like professional reputation. Right. Yes. And that's the mindset I think a lot of faculty had. And I, one faculty member in particular tried to say that, and she was also a woman of color where she was like, I would rather correct you in here than you be corrected out in the workforce and possibly even worse, harm a student in the process. Because that, you know, like you said, they're going out, like these are gonna be our colleagues. And for me, it actually was very scary to know that these people could potentially work with students of color and do a lot of harm to them, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, because when I was in graduate school, my GA was like in residence life. And I was like, we should do this training because everyone is talking, oh, exactly about Mizzou and like the Yale issue and like a a faculty member saying that um, cultural appropriation of costumes is just freedom of speech. And so like, yeah, all the feelings. And so like some of the RDs were like not talking about it well. And so I was like, as a grad student saying like, let's do this training. And I remember like two people above me were like, yeah, but some of the RDs are like just out of grad school and da da da. And I'm like, I'm in graduate school. Like 
your point is moot. Like that doesn't like, what do you mean? Yeah. And so that's what made me think of like, you, you have to treat graduate students as like, they're going to go into the workforce. So like you have to teach them now because otherwise it's not going to better like help them in the workforce. Right. And I just feel like that's a poor excuse to be like, oh, well, they're new or like they're just a student. No, like you can still be held accountable. Like accountability isn't canceling someone or being mean to someone. It's like, no, like I'm actively putting in emotional labor to help you learn. And then you're going to tell me I'm being mean to you or to be more empathetic because they're new. Yeah. I mean, listen, there was like five people of color out of 50. So like it was a thing. Jeez, in residence life. I never worked in residence life because it it low-key scares me hearing all the stories. So props um, to you for doing that. I did it for the free housing. That's really fair. like free housing was the was the thing. Oh, that's so fair. I worked in disability resources. So I, I actually worked in a very unique area compared to everyone else, at least in my cohort. That's fair. That's how I met Cherry because she was like the one higher ed student in our multicultural center. They like because typically all the other GAs were counselors or social workers, and she was like the one person of color in her higher ed program. And that's oh, how I met Cherry. Dang, maybe not one, but like you know, a few. Yeah, what an experience! Gosh, reflecting on like graduate school, I'm just like, oh, sometimes like it just gives me like the chills. I'm just like, did we do that? Did that actually happen? I know. So I loved graduate school though, but I was also in a different program. So I've, I've thus learned higher ed cohorts are like not great. Like everyone complains about their higher ed cohort. So I'm always like, something needs to change here. It really does. I mean, there was like a clear division too in my cohort. And then like, you know, of course there's like the students of color got accused of like isolating themselves. And I'm just like, no, this is called survival. And I am choosing to set a boundary. I will deal with you in class, but outside of class, like we're good. I don't, I don't need to hang out with you. That's fair. I really like that survival because it is. Uh, how does this then lead you to decide to get a doctorate? Oh, the million dollar question. I'm like, why a doctorate? Yes, uh, it's a good question though. I think a lot of it was, in talking to like faculty mentors, um, people like Amanda, I just really realized I love research and I loved advising and getting to work with students in that capacity. And I don't know what it was. It's, I also then met uh, my current advisor. I don't know. Do I name drop him? I feel really gross about doing that. That's up to you. Uh, we can do okay. it out later. It's, uh, I'll just say I met my current advisor. Um, that currently advises me in my PhD program right now um, at a conference because I was connected to him by one of the faculty in my program who was like, this is the only person I could see you working with. Like they're very caring. Um, they are doing great work. Your research interests align a lot. And I think your personalities get along. So I was like, okay, like whatever. Um, so we met at a conference, we chatted and the rest was kind of history. I decided at that point that a PhD for me felt like what I needed to do to be able to do what I wanted to. So I really thought at that point, like I wanted to be a tenure track faculty member, being able to do research, teaching classes, advising graduate students. And a lot of it too was for my community. Um, 
I talked a little bit about how like community is everything to me, but that was really when I realized it in graduate school, like how much community meant to me. And so I do this work for my community, with my community, and they're the reason for my existence. You know, like without them, I don't exist. And so I felt like for me personally, the way that I could help my my community continue to survive would be through doing a PhD so I could continue to do research, so I could advise, so I could teach, whatever. And of course, that's not everyone's path. But for me, that's what I guess this feels gross to say. I felt called to do. Why does it feel gross? I don't know. Like I have a calling or something. I don't have a calling. I don't know. It's what felt salient to me at the time. I mean, it still does in a sense, but yeah because I'm like parts of this you talk about in past tense I'm like has this journey that you've chosen changed or like the trajectory changed a little bit I mean I'm still in my PhD program do I question dropping out on a weekly and sometimes daily basis absolutely I would say most students of color I talk to in a doc program have very similar thoughts which isn't a problem in and of itself you know like we shouldn't feel this way but I think a lot I've come to realize too is I don't know if I I want to do something like a tenure track faculty position one I don't know if I'm willing to compromise or give up certain parts of who I am and my life to be able to sustain that lifestyle and I've been really reflecting a lot about there has to be other ways to do what I'm passionate about that doesn't require this quote unquote, like very traditional route of going through the tenure track because getting tenure, especially as a woman of color, the rates are not high for it. Like statistically, it is not high. And I just don't know if I want to put myself through that for six years to maybe not even get it. And it's not to bash anyone that chooses to do it because obviously like everyone's journey is very personal, but that's just something I've really reflected on is one. I don't know if I am willing to do it and to like, am I strong enough to handle it or to give up those parts of me that I feel like are the best parts of me in order to continue to be complicit in these spaces that continue to harm my community. Hmm. Kind of doing like a sort of risk assessment. Yes, a little bit, but I feel like I got to speed this risk assessment up because I'm almost done with coursework, which means I got to figure out my dissertation topic and do my qualifying exam and then actually go out into the real world and be a real adult and not a student (laughs) my whole life. I mean, I feel like if you're going to be a researcher, you're kind of still a student in some sense of the form. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I like research. Like I really do like research a lot, but you know, a lot of what I've been talking about in my classes and also reflecting on is like research also harms, especially marginalized communities too. We attend, and you know, when I say we, I mean, collectively, like as people in academia tend to exploit people's individual stories and sometimes even profit off them under the premise of education in research And that's something that just hasn't been sitting well with me. Like why, you know, there has to be other ways to still talk about these experiences, but not constantly have people have to talk about their pain and trauma. You know, like they're having this pain and trauma because there are things systemically wrong going on. And so, yeah, there was an article we read by Wayne Yang and Eve Tuck that kind of talks about this type of like refusal, not to sound like all academic, but it really hit me a lot about how, fucked up research can be honestly yeah you should um 
I don't know. She has books. So yeah, you could probably read them. Um, Lee Patel. She's, I love her. Oh, so she was my, she was the professor for that one doctoral course that I took. Um, I'm so she, having like a fangirl moment and a little bit jealous. <laughs> Lee Patel is great. I, when I took her class, I was like, I want to be you when I grow up. Like, you're amazing. So she talked about how, like, which really made me think about research and thinking about like, like we think about the bell curve, like we always talk about the bell curve, but then really thinking about the like ends of the bell curve. And those are the people you should really focus on. And academia like forces you to not, and like makes you think that they're not relevant and that isn't part of everything and so how do you balance the idea of that with like academia Mm, I like that a lot and I think that's very important for all of us to be thinking about but I will say most people like we're all complicit like choosing to be in academia no matter what your reasoning is even my reasoning for like I do this for my community as a form of survival I'm still complicit like I am actively choosing to be a part of a system that is violent and that harms especially students of color and communities of color. So, but yeah, we, we're here and we think saying like, oh, I'm white and I'm a male and I know I have privilege is somehow acknowledging our positionality when it's, it's not. So I think that's where I get sometimes frustrated in academia is we have to push beyond this like, oh, I'm just gonna like name all my identities and somehow like that's good enough and like, diminishes the harm that I'm doing it doesn't like you are still doing harm so all I have to say is like I've been thinking a lot about like the purpose of research and like why we actually do it and as much as I still enjoy it I don't know if I want that to always be my focus you know and that is part of going on a tenure track is research and publishing is a huge component of it and I'm just like but I like really love teaching and I really love working with students so is there a way I can do that and not constantly have to worry about publishing all the time? I'm very sure that exists. Oh, I'm sure it does. I just don't know what it is right now. And I'm just like, do I have the brain capacity to think about it right now? No. <laughs> That's very fair. That's also really hard. Um, in thinking about hard questions, do you even have an idea of what your dissertation would be about? Oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think yes and no, because I always felt like, oh, I'm going to do something on Asian American transracial adoptees, you know, research is me search, it's something I'm very passionate about, there's not a lot of research out there to begin with, but at the same time, I really did some deep reflecting and thinking about why do I feel like I have this obligation to do research on a community related to my own identities. And I think a lot of it was because I felt like I needed to remain relevant or to be allowed to do this type of work in the future. I had to write a dissertation on it, which is absolutely false. I've talked to a lot of faculty about it. Um, So I don't know, I think that's where I'm kind of am. Still really love doing that type of work, but there's so many other things I'm interested in. And can I potentially do that for a dissertation, but still be able to do the type of work that I still love and that relates to my community, my social identities in the future if I don't do it now? And the answer I've been told is yes, across the board. But so it's more like an internal me feeling I need to work through, but yeah, I I have no idea what I'm gonna do, honestly. I mean, at least you got a year, right? A year? Yeah, so uh, the way my program works is so you have roughly around like two, two and a half years of coursework, depending the rate that you go at it. And then you have to do your qualifying exam, which is basically like a, a literature review. But 
ideally it should, or it's supposed to relate to your potential dissertation topic. Cause you know, it can help inform it. So in that sense, I kind of have to decide what I'm doing, at least for this literature review. And I just don't know what I want to do yet. So I'm just like, I will just let myself be messy until I'm done with coursework. And maybe this summer I'll start to figure it out. Fair, fair. Have to protect your peace. Yeah. I mean, that's what a faculty member told me too, because I'm such, I don't know if you're this way. I'm such a planner for everything though. A lot of it is like, I just need to control things to feel like I, because I feel like so much of my life, you know, a lot of it relates to experiences was so out of control. So that I try to control the aspects that I can to make me feel more in control when everything feels out of control. That was very wordy. I apologize. Um, so all that to say is that I control a lot of things and I always have a plan and this time I don't, and that's really hard for me. So a faculty just said, why don't you plan not to have a plan right now or just plan to be messy? So from like January to June until you're done with coursework, you don't have to think about any of this. Just absorb as much as you can. Put things in your little like things I should read folder. You don't have to touch it. And then come summertime, that's when you actually make a plan of what you're going to do. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. Plan not to plan. Why did I think of that? <laughs> Listen, I am also a planner. The question I now hate in interviews is like, what's your plan for the next three to five years? Like once you hit the workforce, I'm just like, my plan has changed so often. And now I'm just like, I don't know, to still have a job. That's really my three to five year plan is to, to still have a job. That's the goal. Right. I'm like, I barely know what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. You want me to tell you what I'm going to do in three to five years? Pass. <laughs> Even for my current role, they were like, what do you, what do you want for your three or five year plan? I was like, um, a job, <laughs> <laughs> money. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why I'm like, now I'm just like, it's okay. I'll just, I'm just figuring it out as I go along now. So to kind of move us away from professional life, um, how do you then balance really just like all thinking about systems, thinking about how, how the system sucks. How do you, um, how do you then handle that in your personal life? Oh, yes. That's a good question. Uh, I have a partner that's also in academia too. So that is quite an adventure. Uh, he is getting two doctorates. One is like a clinical doctorate in audiology, which he already has. So he is a full blown confident doctor, but he's also getting a PhD. Um, so at times it feels like I don't really get away from it, you know, because we're both experiencing it, but at the same time, it's really comforting because I have someone that can understand this mutual experience that we're going through together. But that work-life balance is really hard. But I also think too, being in a very healthy relationship, like I will say, this is probably the first healthy relationship I've ever been in, in my entire life, you know, like including like the high school, like dating and whatever. And just having that solid foundation of a relationship and having knowing and trusting and having a partner that you know will support you through it all which let me tell you he has like we have truly been the ring through the ringer together not because of us but because of you know personal things that have happened to both of us 
And the fact that he has stuck by my side, I'm just like, what did I do to deserve this? I am not worthy. And he's always constantly like, you deserve it all. Like you are enough. And I'm just like, I don't know how to handle being in a, like these emotions. <laughs> so it's, I, again, that was a long answer. All that to say is it helps a lot in my personal life to be able to know that I have a partner that genuinely supports me and wants the best for me, but also can understand this mutual experience that we're both going through. I'm just already impressed that he's getting two doctorates. Right? Like having one doctorate is hard too. Right? Like is it and like I a just com- is it like a combined program? Kind of. So yeah, it's like a a dual program. So a lot of it is like their coursework can transfer over or some of it can which is nice. So it kind of speeds up the process, but like, you know, his one is clinical. So like an AUD is equivalent to kind of like a PharmD, for example, you know, like they have their own type of doctorate, but it's more for a clinical setting or to work in clinics. So for us, that would be kind of equivalent to being a practitioner in student affairs. Um, But he's also very interested in research and he's an amazing teacher. He uh, teaches undergrads and grad students. So yeah, I mean, I look at him every day and I'm just like, I don't know how you do it. You're super smart. And I'm over here just like a little bean, just trying not to have an emotional breakdown every day. <laughs> Hannah, you're doing great. I'm I so sure you're it. doing great. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so in thinking also about the system and thinking, how do you then choose, like, how do you find or choose your partner? Did that make sense? Kind, yeah. So like kind of how like we met in a sense or like how we we can start with that. We can start with that. So funny story. I think he's okay with me talking about this. We we tell everyone we meet, honestly, it's a hilarious story. Um, He's two years older than me. So I actually met him when I was in my last year of my undergraduate unknowingly at the time. Like we were both in relationships, like didn't think anything of it, but he was running some like clinical test, you know, like when you're in the clinic, you have to get so many like hours in. So he was learning how to run this test and they needed volunteers and we were both in the same major. So like, I was also speech language and hearing sciences thinking I was going to be a speech therapist. Like I said, he actually pursued it. I did not. So he was in the audiology program already as a graduate student. So I had volunteered because it had been advertised in one of our classes. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll do it. Went in and that's how we met. Um, I fell asleep during the experiments. Wait, what is this experiment? Were you just supposed to listen? You were just supposed to lay there. And I was like, well, it's dark. And there's these like very soothing beeping noises going on in my head. So yeah, I fell asleep. Um, It wasn't like a bad thing, like you could, but also like, not the greatest first impression (laughs) either, but you know what? So that was like our first meeting and we didn't realize this until we actually started dating. So we met then in graduate school. I was in my last year of my master's program and he was in his fourth year of the audiology program and starting the PhD program. We met on a dating app, (laughs) ironically, and we obviously, you know, we swiped, we batch, all that good stuff. We went on a date and I was like, oh my gosh, this dude is so nice and he's so normal. And like our energy levels matched. We just 
this was the first time I met a man that had like goals and ambitions. And I was like, this is too good to be true. Like, honestly, this is too good to be true. But I was like, whatever, I'm just going to go with it. So we went on a few dates and yeah, here we are almost two and a half years later. <laughs> um, when you did swipe, did you know that you knew him before? No, because he looked so different and I looked different because I had, I didn't have bangs at the time and I had bangs. <laughs> Wait, so when did you two realize that you were like, oh shoot, we've met before? When we started talking about our undergraduate majors and then we got into a conversation about like, like, you know, those deep conversations you have at the beginning of relationships and him talking about graduate school. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I said his name and I was like, I think we've met before, like prior to dating. And we had already, we were already boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And he was like, no way. So I went back to my emails. I found our email exchange and it was so cringy. Like it wasn't bad cringy. It was just so professional of like, hello, blah, 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 blah. I'm just confirming the time of like your experiment and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so gross. But yes, I found an email exchange. <laughs> so that's how we figured it out. <laughs> that's like such a mind blowing moment. It really is. And like, this isn't a secret. Like we tell our, our families think the story is absolutely hilarious. Um, and that my first, his first impression of me was that I fell asleep and he was like, oh my gosh, you're the girl that fell asleep. And I was like, ah, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. like you could have like a sleeping beauty themed wedding, you know? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's honestly a hilarious story looking back on it, but at the time I was like, oh shoot, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I think it's a cute story. But in in terms of, I guess before him, like how did you choose partners? Oh, okay, okay, I get what you mean. Um, I don't, uh, not to sound like full of myself, but I guess the boys are always came after me. <laughs> I don't okay, know. Who so did it, you say yes to? So I would say I, I had a preference, I guess, towards Asians because I felt some sort of comfort with it. So the first guy I dated, like, you know, your first high school love, he was Asian American. He was half Asian. He was half Taiwanese, half white. So I dated him and then dated like two white boys in high school, then like broke up with one of them, like into college because we went to the same college. Um and as I was learning about like my Asian American identity development, I was like looking back on those two relationships specifically with white boys. And I was like, oh my gosh, were they hypersexualizing me? Like, do they have a fetish? <laughs> like those were my thoughts after, you know, like once you just learn all this information, you just like, I started having like a crisis of like, oh shoot, did that happen to me? <laughs> but you know, honestly, I don't know. They just like weren't healthy relationships, but I think- there was like somewhat common interests and like, of course, like you have like physical attractions to each other. Um, but in college, I only dated Asian boys. Um, and they were like not the greatest experiences, but I feel like a lot of what for me was being in very toxic relationships was it was it felt hard for me to get out of them because a lot of it like I was scared in a sense, but there was also a sense of comfort 
and there was like a, oh shoot, like, what am I going to do? Like, this is all I've ever known. So basically every guy I dated in college with the exception of my current partner, we met through the cultural center. A lot, there was a lot of dating that happened. Uh, That sounds normal. Uh, I feel like that's very normal. Um, When you said that like dating another Asian person was comforting, can you, I guess, expand more on like, where's that comfort? Especially because like, right, like you grew up in an all white space, you have an all white family. Um, Like, I guess where, how do you decide or figure out where the comfort lies? That's a good question, uh, especially because one of those relationships, like their mom literally told me like, do you consider yourself a real Asian because you're raised by white people? That relationship didn't last very long, quite honestly. <laughs> um, I think a lot of it was like, they looked like me. I felt like I didn't really have to explain these somewhat shared experiences. So yeah, I don't really know where the comfort came from. I and mean, I think just being in the cultural center that felt like home and that's where I met a lot of these people. I'm just like, oh, you know, you're a decent human being, like our friend groups are all the same, you know, like it's comfortable kind of thing, you know, like we don't have to try and reintroduce each other to like other friend groups. But the families were always the hardest thing to navigate, particularly in one relationship. Um, the others were pretty open to it. But yeah, I I don't really know why I say comfortable. I think it was more comfortable at the beginning. But as you know, you kind of get past like that honeymoon phase that's when their true colors started to show. What do you mean by navigating the family part was like hard? Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of them came from like very traditional Chinese Mm. families with the exception of one, which was like also probably the only other healthy relationship I've been in. Um, Very traditional Chinese, like Asian families did not approve of me in the sense that I was raised by white people. I was uncultured, so to speak. I couldn't handle spicy food. I didn't know like what certain Asian foods were. There was a lot of judgment that happened, I think too. I think sometimes like as time went on and they saw, you know, I was, I had goals, I had ambitions. I wasn't, you know, just dating their son for whatever reason they thought it was. Um, I was slowly started to be more accepted, but there was always that in the back of my mind of like, they're never fully going to accept me because of my identity of being an adoptee because I'm not a true Asian. I feel it. Okay. So let's talk about that. Like what, I mean, what is a true Asian? Right. We are all part of this larger diaspora, not to sound all academic, but like there is no one way to be Asian or Asian American, but it, at least for these families of the, I'm not even going to call them men, the boys that I dated, they had a very set mindset of like, you know, they come from parents that are both Asian. They can speak the language, like blah, 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 all that, all of that. So when I didn't fit that mold, it was suddenly like, oh, she's not good for you. Or you're never going to last because she's not a true Asian. Like you need to find someone that's more cultured. I guess, what is that like for you to have, like, I feel like it's different when, like, peers tell you that, but, like, when, like, adults tell you that? 
uh, it felt like rejection all over again. Cause as an adoptee, I had already worked through a lot of this idea of feeling like I was rejected and unwanted. Um, because you know, that's a lot of times the narrative you're told is like, Oh, they didn't want you, but like, we loved you. And you know, you're here, you have very loving parents. So it felt like rejection all over again, but I'm just like, also in my mind, I was like, I can't change who I am. Like, this is me. Um, and that's something I really came to realize. And that's when one of the relationships ended. Cause I was like, honestly, I know who I am. And like, if you can't accept that, and like, this is not a healthy relationship for other sorts of reasons, then you don't deserve me like low key. So yes, Hannah, <laughs> speak your truth. <laughs> I was too good to deal with that BS anymore. <laughs> what was it like for you when you like learned about like Asian fetish, fetish, fetishization wow I can't say this it's word. a mouthful fetishization you know what I'm talking about um, what was that like for you like realizing and learning about the fetishizing of Asian women and then reconciling that like oh I dated white boys I was like dang I dated the colonizers for one but two I was like men are gross men are trash um so yeah, that was pretty much it. I was just like, oh, that happened. And I think that's why I was always skeptical of like white boys and maybe why I never dated any after because that was my first thought then. Like once you know information, like you can't unknow it. So my first thought always was like, are you hypersexualizing me? Do you have a, do you have a, fetishiza a fetishization? <laughs> yeah, see, it's hard. Right? So for Asian women, so... I think for me, I was like, I don't have time to deal with that. Like, I don't have time to deal, you know, with whatever issues or whatever, like things of you think it's cool to date an Asian girl. So I just did it. And white people started to scare me a lot. You know, the more I learned about this, I was like, white people cannot be trusted. <laughs> I mean, fair, very fair. Um, have you... Have you ever experienced other moments where you're like, you're hypersexualizing me and I don't like it? Or like, I'm just going to walk away from this person? I think sometimes in public. So, like, my partner and I, when we're out in public, a lot of times people tell us, like, how beautiful we look. Like, white people tell us, like, how beautiful we look together. We should be on a magazine. Um, some people are like, oh, I thought you were brother and sister, but like, clearly you're not. And I'm just like, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm so awkward in these situations, but luckily my partner's just like, okay. <laughs> And like, he's also very aware of this. And he was like, were they hypersexualizing us? Like, what is going on? Like, why are people obsessed with Asians? So, or like, you know, this, this idea of, there's a lot that goes into like, why I think people hypersexualize um, and also emasculate Asian men at the same time too. So yeah, more dealing it with in public now, but I honestly am really bad at handling those situations when people say things, cause I'm just like, I don't want to confront you because I'm not in the mood to fight or like deal with a Karen right now. So I'm just going to smile and be like, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's how I feel. Um, but also you two are very beautiful people just like in general. Oh, so thanks. I'm just saying, um, secondly, no, I completely understand because I've done the same thing. I also never realize it in the moment. And I realize it after, like there was one time where like I was in college and I was just, 
I was part of a dance troupe and we were trying to like raise funds at a football game. And like this really one old white man was like, oh, are any of you Filipino? I was with three black girls and I'm like, oh, I am. And he was like, oh, uh, my wife is Filipino and I'm bringing her over. Can I take a picture for you of you so I can send it to her? And I, I was like, I mean, if you give us money, sure. <laughs> Like, I was like, I did not understand that at all. And I was just like, okay. And then like, as I reflect on it, I'm like, he just straight up told me he had a mail order bride, essentially. And that he was just going to show him like, look, here's another Filipino girl. Like, and I was just like, mm, this is uncomfortable. And I think I was a sophomore in college. If <laughs> you give us money or something. I don't think I actually like said that, but I was like really thinking because we were fundraising. We were literally yeah. just asking for donations. So I'm just like, sure. I was like, if you like, I literally thought like, I will say yes, because hopefully he will give us money. No, that's, that's what totally we were there fair. for. No, and I get that. I feel like a lot of times, like you're saying, we don't fully comprehend those situations that happened to us because you're just so in shock of like, oh my gosh, is this actually happening to me right now? And like a survival, you're just like, I'm just going to go with it and we'll cope with these feelings later or not cope with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Or no, like uh, on the Tinder stage, like there was like, oh, you're Filipino. Like I was once with a Filipino girl and she was really good in bed. So I'm going to assume you are too. And I'm like, Ew. How do you say that to someone like first message. I'm just like, I'm just going to not respond at all. Yeah. Ew. It's funny when, because I had never used dating apps until when I met Brian and I would like only swipe I don't I forget which way it is like which way is right which way is left is left you like them right is pass I don't remember I don't know I would only swipe like what I would like someone if they were Asian because well I'm one of these like a lot of the white boys I was just like you just look like you're living in your glory days of like being a frat bro and I'm just like I'm about to have a master's degree. Like I need something serious. You know, I'm like, I don't have time for you to like le relive these days being like a frat boy, like still going out, getting drunk every weekend. So a lot of it was that like, they just, my first impression of their pictures did not say a lot about them. Very fair, very fair. Uh, yeah, no, I don't remember the swipe. No, I met my partner on Coffee Meets Bagel. So there's like no swiping on that. Oh, I use coffee meets bagel too, where you got like a new bagel every day. Yeah. <laughs> and you could talk about if you had a bad bagel or a good bagel. I yeah, the one... conversation starters. Oh yeah, I never understood those. I know, and they were like, such bad suggestions. Someone actually used that on me and I was like, why would you ask me that? And they were like, oh, it was like one of the suggested ones. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, no, but that one is also a very Asian app because it was made by Asian people. Yes, I definitely met a lot of Asians on that app. I only went on a date with one of them. And I mean, he was he was like good looking, but I, he was just such a bro. And like oh. he was constantly like partying all the time. And I'm just like, you're like 28 years old. Aren't you tired of that? I mean, like no judgment, but I was just like, that's not a lifestyle for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but not sorry that's how I see a lot of Asian people in Arizona like I feel like that's what they're like 
trying to be those like Asian baby girls and like those like bad boy Asian boys. Oh my gosh, I did not learn what ABGs were until <laughs> college. And then like when I learned, I was like, oh, this all makes sense now. It really does. Yeah. Even my partner's um, like Bumble profile. It was interesting. We've talked about like how we chose our photos, but like one of them was him like shotgunning a beard. I was like, oh my gosh. But in his bio, he wrote he was a PhD student. I was like, all right, there's a brain in there somewhere. And uh, we've talked about this too. So I was like, all right, I'll give it a chance. And I mean, I'm glad I did. But I was just (laughs) like, I was like, why? Like, why do men think that like is attractive? And then he explained to me like how his friends explained it to him. And I was like, okay. I guess this makes sense. Wait, what do you mean? How do they explain it to him? They're like, oh, you just got to show up. Like, you know how to have a good time. And like, if, you know, you're wearing a bro tank and your arms look nice. And I'm just like, that's so superficial, but okay. I mean, that's what photos are. They're just superficial. That's true. Yeah. Meanwhile, I literally, one of my photos was just straight up my dog. Like I used one of the slides. I'm not in the picture with my dog. It's just my dog. (laughs) A very Hannah thing to do. <laughs> That's not not normal. I feel like there are plenty of photos that are just dogs out a lot of people's. Like I feel like I watched this like it's not TikTok. It's like one of those like reels video where it's like standard photos you put on dating profiles. It's like one traveling, one with your pet, one with family. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I think I had like a graduation photo where like I was feeling myself in it. I had one of like me hiking and like the scenery was really pretty. And then my dog. (laughs) Wait, so then how did you end up actually swiping on your partner? Because he had a PhD? Yeah, because his bio said PhD. Okay, so his first picture was like not the beer picture. It was like one of his last. And so like his other pictures, I was like, oh, he's cute, you know? And then I read his bio and I should have put the pieces together then because it said audiology PhD student, but like my mind did not put the connections together. And I was like, there is a brain in there somewhere. I was like, you're good looking. Like, we'll see. So like we matched and then on Bumble, like the girl has to reach out first. I was just like, Hey, how is your weekend going? And at first I was a little skeptical again. Cause it was like during Halloween and he's like, we were talking kind of ongoing. And he's like, Oh, my friends are trying to convince me to go out. And I was like, really? Like you're going out. But then again, like I have to realize like I'm kind of an antisocial person. So like going out for me was not really a thing and also like being in grad school all my classes were at night so like one of my classes was I'm not even joking from 7 p.m to 10 p.m at night yeah I believe that mine were six to nine it's rough it's really rough rough. yeah so we talked and eventually like we went on a date I picked a location I picked the coffee shop that was basically on our campus because I was like I'm familiar with it I know it. It's, it's safe. in a public area. Yes. We are going to go in broad daylight when there are lots of students around. Uh, but yeah, that's basically it. We went to coffee and just hit it off. That's cute. Did he actually read your bio? He did. He thought my dog was very cute. That was a conversation start. He was like, I love dogs. Your dog is super cute. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be great. I was like, if you don't like dogs, that's a problem. Like automatically, (laughs) if you don't like dogs, I'm like, I can't do it. (laughs) I feel like I've learned throughout this process that more and more men don't read bios. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But no, he actually read my bio and I was like, that's the PhD student in you. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Absolutely. My partner did not read the bio. He thought I was like three years older than I actually was. I'm like, my age is on the bio. Like literally all you have to do was read it. He's like, I know, but you just seem older. And I'm like, but my age is right here. I wasn't lying. And then like when it sometimes shows your height and then I like have had men flat out admit they're like, oh yeah, I give myself an extra inch or two. And I'm like, you think we're stupid? Like we know, we know when you say like you're 5'11 and you show up and you're looking 5'8, which is fine. Like height doesn't really matter to me, but I'm just like, what is society doing to us that we feel like we have to do this? But I'm just like, also like, you feel like girls don't know this? Like we know, (laughs) but I did not lie about his height. (laughs) I will say that. So I was like, he is an honest man. The rest is history. He's put up with my sassy, stubborn, stressed out butt for two and a half years. That's lovely. No, but he's just so kind. Honestly, he is like one of the most kind souls I have ever met in my entire life. Like I just, even my mom is like, how is someone so nice? Like no one is this nice. And I'm just like, he's just genuinely that nice. And like, I know where he gets it from. Like his family is just so nice too. Like they were so welcoming, so supportive. They include me in everything. And I'm just like, I'm not I'm not used to this. Like, thank you. But I'm like, I don't know how to act in these situations. I wouldn't either. Have you learned now? <laughs> I have. And I, I, I give a lot of props to my partner because like, for instance, like when Lunar New Year comes around, like a lot of times, you know, pre-COVID, we would go to like Chinese restaurants or like dim some places. And, you know, like, I don't know a lot of things. One, you know, I'm not Chinese and two, like I'm adopted, raised in Scottsdale, Arizona. So... <laughs> Like I, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of these foods and stuff. And so Brian would always sit next to me and, you know, he would like kind of explain like very quietly. So what, you know, it wasn't like, she doesn't know what this is. Um, So he would always like explain and he would always like serve me and be like, oh, like, do you want blah, 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 like whatever it was. And then he'd like explain what was in it. So yeah, I just feel really lucky to have a partner that is so supportive and like genuinely understands like this man came to a Korean American adoptee conference with me to try and learn more about my experiences. And I was like, if that's not love, I don't know what is. That's so beautiful. Um, speaking of the conference, uh, have you tried to like, learn Korean culture whatever that may mean yes yes and yes and no (laughs) Um, I actually think my parents did a pretty good job in trying to like keep some sense of culture so through the adoption agency we were adopted through in Arizona they would do things like Chuseok which is kind of like the Korean Thanksgiving if you will so they would host it and all the families in Arizona that you know adopted children through this agency were invited so we would go almost every single year up until a certain age um, when we just kind of got too busy with life but they would have like traditional dances you know activities for the kids where like you could learn how to like write your name in Korean there was food there so I think I knew a little bit about especially like food I was like I love my chapchae I love my bibimbap like all that stuff so I knew what that was 
Um, but in terms of like other things like language and stuff, no, not really. I think I just never really had opportunities to learn that. And I don't know, it never really felt salient to me. I think it would be cool to still, but it's not something I guess that's at the top of my list, but it definitely makes me feel like an imposter when I don't know if I'm even pronouncing Korean food names correctly, <laughs> or I don't know what certain things are, or I can't speak the language, or like my hanbok is from when I was three years old, and I don't have any other traditional wear anymore that actually fits. So, yeah. Listen, I don't have any traditional wear, so it's <laughs> fine. Secondly, do you know you could rent a, han- a hanbok? I didn't know that, but you can yes. rent them. Yeah. So, so you could just rent it. So it's fine. Yeah, that's true. No, and I, I found, actually found a place in California because I'm technically, I technically live in California, even though I'm not presently there. <laughs> <laughs> but there's actually like a, a local place in LA that does it, especially for like weddings and stuff. Cause you know, not, we're not engaged or anything, but like wedding hopefully is in the future. And that's something we've talked about is like, oh, would we incorporate some sort of traditional elements, whether it be like on Brian's side, like a Chinese tea ceremony or there's like some Korean traditions or just even wearing like traditional Korean wear and like Chinese wear for some portion of it. So it's been fun to kind of look at it. And I was like, it's so pretty, but why is it so expensive? Because there are so many pieces. Yes. Um, actually, I don't know. My mother-in-law is Korean. So my partner is half Korean, half black. That This is how I've learned all these things. Oh. Uh, so like, cause she was saying that like for weddings, all the men's all the men's side they all wear blue so like she has to get a blue hanbok and then on the women's side everyone wears pink ones interesting okay this is good to know yeah so far, look know. for a pink one <laughs> got it <laughs> <laughs> at least i think it's pink but yeah so those are the things that i've learned um have you ever been to korea no, it's it's definitely on our list. We both said when we both graduate with our PhDs, we're going to do some sort of like big trip to Asia, most likely, because he's never been back to China and would like to at some point. Um, but it's on my list for sure. I would love to go. Um, yeah, and take my brother with me if he wants to go with me. <laughs> That's cute. Uh, have If this is too personal, this is fine. Have you ever reached out or found your birth parents? Uh, no. So that's actually a good question. I don't mind talking about it because I'm pretty open about it. I, I'm curious, like I would like to do a search just out of pure curiosity, even though I probably know like the chances of finding your birth parents are pretty slim, um, especially at least the information I was given about my birth parents, like they were very poor, like working class, like my birth parents, neither of them made it past like grade six. Uh, my birth father got injured working in the mine. So like he couldn't even work. They already had three kids prior to me. Uh, so I think I would be curious in that sense more to see like if my siblings are alive, because from what I know, I think I have two sisters and a brother and then like I would be the youngest. Um, but my brother, my my blood brother I think he's would only be like three years older than me. So we would be pretty close in age. Um, and my birth parents, they, at least from what the documents say, which they can definitely lie to you. Um, they were a lot older when they had kids. So there's a chance like, you know, they might 
not be alive. Like that is a great possibility, but I am curious. I just feel right now, like being in a PhD program, I'm already so emotional and I don't need to add potentially more emotional baggage to that. So I think I want to wait until either I'm like closer to being done with my program or actually out of it. That's fair. That's fair. It is a lot, which is also why I'm like, eh, do I actually want to do a doctoral program? Yes, Erlinda, come to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like you have to do what's best for you, but like I fully support you doing one. <laughs> um, has your brother ever found his birth parents? No, no, at least from what I know. And I think for him, like, it's a, a little bit of a, a different topic. And I like, I don't want to speak about his story or anything because, you know, it's his story to tell. But no, and I'm not sure if, like, the desire is really there or not. That's fair. Um, well, this is the end of our podcast. Is there anything you would like to promote, talk about, or encourage folks to look into? <sighs> Um, uh, well, okay. So I'm a tourist. So like, I love food and wine. I don't know if that's actually a thing for tourists to like wine, but if you do need a little liquid courage to get through, you know, your grad programs and, you know, just jobs in general, I do have some recommendations. <laughs> if people are curious, um, if you like Chardonnay, I, because I am, I like dry white wine. Um, also a big fan of red, white wine. Um, the butter wine, get it at Trader Joe's if you have a Trader Joe's because it tends to be cheaper than if you get it at like other like chain grocery stores. It's very good and it has a screw off top so you don't have to finish the whole bottle and try and shove the cork back in it because I usually break the cork to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I do recommend that. Any Pinot Noirs are really great and then I mean, I love Trader Joe's. So they have like those like Bellinis, which is basically just like juice, but there's grapefruit, mango, and peach. I recommend them all, but be careful because it literally tastes like juice. So you can get carried away. I mean, that sounds great though. Oh, it's delicious. Yes. I love like a good wine and food pairing. I just love food so much. Like I am always hungry, which is also a problem. <laughs> Anyways, those are my recommendations for now. <laughs> thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us. This was great. Uh, thank you so much for telling us about your story. Thank you for having me and putting up with me and my messiness and my very poor wine recommendations. <laughs> no, you were great. I appreciate you. Thanks appreciate for having you. me. <laughs>